When I was in primary school, I was in the Ballinrobe School Marching Band, and I was really good. My glockenspiel and I were as one, and only the coldest of hearts could remain unmoved by my lyrical flourishes and precision marching on a nation once again. Sister Frances wasn't supposed to have any favourites in her band, but everyone knew I was her favourite. Our nemesis was the Claire Morris marching band, 15 miles and light years away across the bog. Their band was older and bigger than ours, and although we would never have admitted it at the time, their uniforms were nicer and fancier than ours too. They also had a train station and a swimming pool, and they thought they were better than us. But everyone knew you could never get parking in Clare Morris, so they could feck off with their ideas above their train station. Clare Morris was the bog standard by which Ballinrobe judged itself. So in a spirit of competition that would have touched the cold heart of the brand new British Prime Minister Maggie Thatcher, beating the fancy costumed Clare Morris band was our carrot, while Sister Frances's stern displeasure was our stick. Not mine, of course. I was her favourite. So when we qualified for the All-Ireland Schools Marching Band Finals in Killarney, it wasn't the thought of lifting the trophy after a spectacular performance of Aaron Levine that spurred us on through hours of practice, but rather the thought of the Clare Morris Band's crumpled faces as they stood, hopefully in the rain, and watched us lift it before they got the train home. I don't remember now which saint it was that Sister Frances had decided was concerned with the outcome of school's marching band competitions rather than the sick and destitute, but whoever it was, we obviously prayed hard enough and often enough, because when we were clambering back onto our coach to return home from Killarney, Sister Frances proudly clutching the All-Ireland School's marching band winner's trophy, Everything was perfect with the world, and train stations and swimming pools and fancy uniforms seemed but trivial things. And when the coach stopped on the side of the road for a pee break, not long into the long journey back to Mayo, everything was still perfect with the world. And when Sister Frances took me and my two sisters aside and walked us a little way you know, away from the rest of the victorious peeing band, everything was still perfect with the world. And then she told us that Granny had died. You know, Granny Hoban was a formidable woman who had raised five kids on a Guinness secretary's wage. She used to come you know, just to visit us on the train, or we would go to Dublin to visit her. But for the last while, she had been living in our back bedroom, which hummed constantly with the sound of her ventilator. Sister Frances said she was in heaven now, and I'd say God was already regretting letting cancer get her because she could be quite stern when she wasn't pleased, and, you know, and I'd say she was already giving him a proper bollocking. Now, I knew what death was. After all, we'd already buried a whole cemetery worth of various pets in the garden, dogs and cats and budgies and hedgehogs and rabbits and sheep. But I had never known a person who had died before, and I knew that this was going to be a much bigger deal. You know, we wouldn't be burying Granny Hoban at the bottom of the garden. And while the bus bumped its way back to Ballinrobe, my, you know, and my sisters cried, I cried too. Now, I cried because I wouldn't see Granny Hoban again, but I cried too because... I wasn't really sure what not seeing Granny Hoban again would be like. But mostly I cried because I was sure that Mammy would be crying. And Mammy crying was a rare and awful thing. And I dreaded arriving home. The Sister Frances has said that there'd be a lot of people in the house when we got there. And I imagined my Mammy, you know, coming to the door to meet us, crying and sobbing, terrifying grown-up tears. And inside in the sitting room, there'd be all lots of grown-ups, you know, some of whom I would know and some of whom I wouldn't, you know, all sitting around 
quietly crying and looking sad at me with big, significant grown-up looks because I was a granny orphan now, and I didn't want to go home. And when we got home, Mammy did come to meet us, and we were still crying, but Mammy wasn't crying. She was you know, smiling and hugging us and telling us that Granny Hoban would be very proud about the trophy. And inside in the sitting room, there were lots of grown-ups, like Sister Frances had said, but they weren't crying either. They were drinking and chatting and laughing and eating sandwiches and biscuits and telling jokes and remembering that time that Granny Hoban gave some fella a proper bollocking. It turned out that it's great crack when somebody dies. <clears throat> you know, there was no biscuits and sherry when Sonny the Budgie had died. And I secretly hoped that someone else would die soon because the biscuits were fancy. But like everyone, as I got older, I became more familiar with death. There was Granny O'Neill, whose hand I touched as she lay in the coffin on her bed and immediately felt better because that cool, plastic-feeling hand was definitely not Granny O'Neill's hand anymore. She was somewhere else, presumably better. And then there were neighbors and friends' parents and eventually friends, a lot of friends, actually, when AIDS was decimating my community. And I became familiar with death in other countries, too, and other cultures, and I learned that, actually, we do death really well in Ireland, you know, much better than in other places. My English friends worry that they will be intruding at the funerals of acquaintances whose families they didn't know well, and they often go back to work the day after their father passes and work for sometimes two weeks before the funeral actually happens. They worry about what to say and what to do, but we don't. Everyone knows the rituals. We know what to do and we know what to say. Neighbors gather, meals are made and delivered, you know, drinks are raised, stories remembered, a life anecdoted. Lifts are organized, cars shared, removals to St. Mary's, hands shaken, and we are sorry for your troubles. The rituals are familiar and comforting. Everybody knows their role. They are easy and we are eased through loss. And losing things is the human condition. As we grow older, we lose our hair, our eyesight, our strength, our memory, our youth, our friends, and our loved ones. And if growing older is perhaps a process of losing things, then growing wiser is perhaps learning how to cope with their loss. <laughs>